It is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside. A place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with this place because I wanted to be a chef. And this is the only place that I've ever been to where I actually watched people cook. This was action to me. Because I would see these people cooking at a pace and, and cooking for people who were completely out of control, but still providing hospitality. It was one of the things that really helped me fall in love with, with cooking. Waffle House. And, yes, I can't believe I didn't know about this. Gentlemen. Oh. oh, the pecan waffle. You just crush it. You put every seed. Just slather it. I, wa I want it to be swimming in syrup and homogenized vegetable oil. <laughs> oh, oh, that's good. That, that, that's good. Uh, see, you don't come here expecting the French laundry. You come here expecting something amazing. This is better than the French laundry, no. man. <laughs> After a few bites of waffle, a burger, a hunk of generic T-bone and some hash browns, one feels drawn right to the center of what makes our country great. It drives me to clamber up on the counter and start reciting Walt Whitman, the Star-Spangled Banner, Jose, can you see? And you know what? I doubt I'd be the first. Good evening, Kairos. Uh, my name's Danny. I'm so glad to join you tonight. Um, and uh, before I get started, I just want to say, happy homecoming week. Anybody having fun this week? Okay. I also, like this side, nobody clapped over here. This side, all cheers. This side, I want to go home, home, home. You know, not home, not home here, but whatever. It's fine. Uh, so glad that, that, that you're here. I'm really, really happy about that. By show of hands, anybody been to a Waffle House before? Oh, I have such a deep affinity for Waffle Houses. It's, it's where you can truly expect that amazing. And that might surprise you. Now, I have a lot of reasons for why I love the Waffle House, and there are many of them. Um, growing up, going to NASCAR races with my family, we would oftentimes eat at the Waffle House. My brother lives in Charlotte, so he lives over in the South, and my sister spent a time of her life when she was living in Charleston. So I would visit them, and we'd go to the Waffle House, and it is just like that clip said. It's where everybody's welcome. I think that's just such a beautiful illustration for how the church is supposed to be. It's a place where everybody's welcome. No matter what your background is, no matter where you think you're going, you can show up in that space. I was reminded of this just last week, because I I was expecting to see amazing somewhere where I did not encounter amazing. Now, I went to Tampa last Thursday. Here's a picture of me in Tampa. I was at the Buccaneers game. As you can see, I was not wearing a Tampa Bay Buccaneers jersey. I am a Tom Brady fan, not a Bucks fan. I love Tom Brady. It's borderline idolatry, and I am working on it. I want you to know that. I confess that before you, and I lay it down as we come to the table tonight to celebrate communion with our Lord. That's getting weird. 
So I was expecting to see amazing there at the stadium that night. And I tell you what, there were some amazing pieces and amazing parts. Tom Brady came trotting out and I waited so long to buy my ticket that somebody sold me my ticket really close to the field for like dirt cheap. I could see the pores on his face. It was incredible. I could hear his conversations with his teammates and he is an encourager. Now, I don't care what you say. He's the greatest quarterback of all time. It doesn't matter who your favorite quarterback is. He's not as good as mine. And that is not debatable. There's no logic or rational debate to rebuke that. So we're not going to talk about it. We're going to move on. I'm talking about Jesus tonight, not, okay, all right. But here's the bummer of the game. Are you ready? I had this big expectation for the night. And the big expectation for the night was that Tom Brady would win. And Tom Brady did not win. In fact, they got beaten pretty bad by the Baltimore Ravens. I left the stadium dejected and sad. And I wish that I had something to look forward to, but I went to this game by myself, which is a little sad, but I went to this game by myself all the way from Iowa because my wife is a teacher. She couldn't take time off from school or anything like that. Um, and so I went down there by myself and I got like the dirtiest, cheapest, worst hotel that I could find. And it was in like this podunk town right outside of Tampa. And I'm like walking the streets because I get to that hotel and like, it was horrible. It was disgusting. Like, I don't want to sleep here. Right? It was really, really bad. There's like bugs actually in the bed. That's what they call bed bugs, right? Not fun, you know? And I tell myself, if I fall asleep, I'm actually going to oversleep my flight. I didn't want to do that. So I'm walking the streets of like outside of Tampa by myself, kicking rocks, feeling sorry for myself. And that's when I saw it. I saw amazing. I saw the Waffle House. And with a dejected spirit, broken, lonely, and tired, I walked in and there was Tom Brady. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Can you believe that? You shouldn't. I walk in, I sit in a booth by myself. I am the definition of like third life crisis, right? Like just, oh, life is awful. This woman named Shonda, who looks like she could probably be about my grandmother, comes up, she goes, we gonna feed you right, baby. She gives me the menu, I order waffles, I order sausage, I order hash browns, I order toast, I order eggs, I order a chocolate milk and it all costs me under like $3. It's incredible. And then there's like this community that's happening. There's some people who are sitting at the bar and they look over me, they're like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from Iowa. And they, I quote, not fully, but said, who the bleep lives in Iowa? I said, I, I do. And all of a sudden, like my spirit was lifted. I was joining people around this table. Now, here's the thing. If you're just gonna walk by a Waffle House, you might miss it. I mean, if you've ever been inside of a Waffle House, like imagine a gas station bathroom where they sell waffles. You know what I mean? It doesn't look great. Even like, even their logo looks like a ransom note. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, if you've ever been in a Waffle House during the day, you're looking around like, I think I saw someone vomit here last night. You're like, oh, there it is. You know, and you find it and like, I'm telling you, I've seen like four fights in real life in my, in my life and three of them have been in a Waffle House. <laughs> like so much happens there. It's amazing. But if you're just walking down the street, you would totally miss it. You'd absolutely miss it. Now, believe it or not, that reminds me so much of the series that we're in right now called Worship. You ready for this? I promise it does. I said this statistic last week, but we didn't have the screen. So I want to tell it to you again. 35% of Christians say they experience connection with God through worship. Only 35% of Christians, when they come into church, feel like they're encountering God, encountering amazing. 
And I wonder if the reason for that is sometimes we're just kind of walking through the motions. We're just walking past and we're missing amazing. Now, please hear me. There are amazing things that happen here, but the worship itself, the traditions that we practice, those are not the amazing things. It is the God who those things point to. That's the amazing thing. When you come to Kairos, I hope that you expect to see amazing stuff, right? Like, I think that you'd probably expect amazing music and you got that. Hopefully you expect an amazing sermon. Anyway, so then you'd also expect like amazing food and tonight like amazing dogs, right? Like amazing stuff. But, but what's it all point to? At Lutheran Church of Hope, which is the church that Kairos is a part of, we have this core value and it's this, we worship God, not tradition. Tradition in and of itself is not a bad thing, but sometimes we can just walk through the motions of tradition. And that's what we're focusing on in the series called Worship, subtitled, What Are We Doing? What's the real purpose and meaning behind the stuff that we do? Because if we don't take a look at the real meaning and the purpose, the depths of the traditions that we practice, we'll miss the amazing. We might see the sites where we're expecting to see amazing in them, but then we walk out of the space like, what was that? There's more than lights, there's more than music, there's more than a message, there's more than food, there's something substantive here. We worship God, we don't worship tradition. Now keep in mind, Jesus did actually tell us there are certain things I want you to do when you gather together. He instituted certain things for us to practice when we come together. Now there are two specific ones that are really, really special in the church that we practice today. And we call these sacraments. Go ahead and say sacrament. The easiest way that I can sum up a sacrament is a sacrament is an active experience in which God promises to show up. Active experience, we're actually practicing it. And in that moment, Jesus has promised he will show up. There are three pieces of criteria that make something a sacrament. This is how we consider something to be a sacrament. The first one is Jesus commands it. Go ahead and say that with me. Jesus commands it. Jesus commands it. There are two things in scripture that Jesus commands and also goes into these other criteria. The first is he commands us to be baptized. You just saw it tonight. We talked about it last week. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples, baptize, make, go there, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He commands it. Then tonight we're talking about communion. You heard it in the Bible reading where Jesus said, when you gather, when you have this meal, you're going to do this. But it's not that he just commands it. He just institutes this practice for no reason whatsoever. No, there's purpose behind this worship. And it is that Jesus promises to give something in this. And he promises to give himself. I think that this is so special and this is so neat. Because sometimes when we practice worship, when we go through the traditions, whether it's an old tradition or a new tradition, some traditions are old, like singing hymns and having pipe organs. Some traditions are newer, like dancing, like the lights, different things like that, whatever it might be. Some feel old, some feel new. Whatever the tradition is, Sometimes we miss the fact that God is here and in this space. But whether we acknowledge it, whether we are aware of it, Jesus says, it doesn't depend on what you're noticing. I'm there. I promise to be there. And in baptism, he promises to show up. And in communion, he promises to be there. And then the third criteria of a sacrament, again, it is an active experience. It's not just something that we think about. It's not something that we just talk about. It's something we actually do. There are physical elements, water for baptism, bread, and wine for communion. Now, let's take a look at these criteria when we talk about communion. 
Jesus had a meal with his disciples. And you heard about this in the Bible reading tonight. This is in Mark chapter 14. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So here's the setting of this big meal, this big moment that Jesus is about to have with his disciples. It's during the Passover feast. Go ahead and say Passover. Passover is deeply important to the Christian faith. It's deeply important to the Jewish faith. And it's important that you know that Jesus was a Jewish man. All of Jesus's friends, all of Jesus's family, they were Jewish people and they practiced this ancient Jewish holiday called the Passover. Do you know what the Passover is? You just open your Bible to the book of Exodus. Everybody go ahead and say Exodus. Exodus means a lot like it sounds like. Exodus is the story in which God exits his people from slavery. It's a story from when God saves his people from living under Pharaoh's rule. Now they'd been living under Pharaoh's rule and living in slavery and in oppression for 400 years. Just to give you an understanding of how long it is, that's longer than this country's been around. They've been living in slavery and oppression under Pharaoh's rule, but Pharaoh wasn't just some ruler. Pharaoh was a ruler that actually claimed to be a God. And so God is looking at his people saying, you're supposed to be worshiping me, but you're living under Pharaoh and under Pharaoh's rules. And God said, I want to rescue from that. Now, here's something that's very interesting to notice. In this story, you're seeing slavery and you're seeing oppression. And throughout the Bible, we see stories and examples of slavery and oppression. And it is so very important to know that while the Bible describes slavery and oppression, the Bible prescribes freedom and justice. If you wanna know the difference between a description and a prescription, a description is something that is inconsistent, but there are examples of it. And throughout the Bible, you see examples of oppression. You see examples of slavery, but the prescription for those things is God wants to set people free from that. And God has called people who follow God to be people of justice, to be people who call out oppression, to be people who lead them from it, to be people who say, you do not have to live under the rule of a false and phony God like Pharaoh. You get to live in the freedom under God's rule. The prescription that God has for the description of slavery is rescue. It's freedom. God has this rescue in this exit plan to get his people out of Pharaoh's rule. And it was through the Passover festival. God sent all these plagues to essentially freak Pharaoh out. Now, Pharaoh was the God over lots of other gods, according to their belief systems. He was the ruler, he was the God over the gods of like nature, of flies, of gnats, of darkness, of light, of blood, of all these different things. And God sends all these plagues that have to do with those. But then there's this last plague. And this last plague is going to represent God's judgment over Pharaoh's actions. It's going to show God's judgment over Pharaoh's idea that it's okay to oppress people, that it's okay to hurt them. And he sends the angel of death over Egypt. It is this harsh and painful story to read. And God will go to the ends of the earth to free his people from a phony God who's hurting them and breaking them. But as God sends this judgment over Egypt, this angel of death, God also sends protection. And this is the rescue plan. This is the great escape. He commands them to sacrifice a lamb. And they would take that lamb and they would take the blood from the lamb and they would paint it on the doorposts. And it would serve as a sign marking the houses where they were staying. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where we get the word Passover. 
This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, every single year after this original Passover meal, God's people would get together and remember how God saved them, how God passed over them. As God sent judgment over Egypt, he protected the people. He protected the people who've been suffering injustice and bringing them into justice. He freed them from their slavery and he brought them into safe, into a safe place with him. Every single year, they would gather around a table and they would remember the Passover meal. They would have a cup, they would have bread, they would have herbs, and they would have lamb. They'd have protein on the table, substance for them to eat. And every single year, a child would stand up and say, how or why do we do this? Essentially, what are we doing in this night of worship? And the head of the household would stand up and they would explain what was happening with the wine representing the blood and the bread representing the body of this lamb, the lamb that had been afflicted to protect and be sacrificed for the people so that the angel of death would pass over and save the people from Pharaoh's rule. Every single year this would happen. And now for Passover meal, it is no mistake that Jesus chooses that moment to say in the same way that once upon, a once upon a time, God saved his people from slavery and from oppression and from socioeconomic oppression, but also from physical oppression. Now I'm going to save you from ultimate oppression. I'm going to deliver ultimate salvation. Jesus is pointing them back to the Passover meal and he's very deliberately choosing this moment to have it with his disciples. But as the disciples are looking around, they don't see the lamb. Instead, Jesus takes the bread and he said, this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood. And it confirms the covenant between God and his people. And it is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Jesus is saying a long time ago, there were people who were freed from their slavery. And today God is showing you his great rescue and exit plan to save his people from ultimate oppression and to save his people with ultimate salvation. And Jesus is saying, it's my blood. It's my body. I'm the protector. I'm the sign. This is what we celebrate. And this is what we remember at the Lord's table. In the same way that for over 1,500 years, the time between the original Exodus and Jesus and his disciples, we now get to gather around the table every single time that we gather as a church. And we get to remember that Jesus is taking us. He has saved us. He has rescued us. And we remember it at the Lord's table. So when we come to the Lord's table, I wanna give you just three things to remember and think about. A lot of times you know that when you come to Kairos, if you hear a message or if you come to Hope, you hear a message, we'll give you kind of like practical takeaways. So, okay, we're gathering. Here's what we want to send you off with. Here's how you can apply this to your life. But in communion, as we gather on the Lord's table, I don't necessarily want to give you homework to take away. Instead, I want you to know what's happening when you come forward. When you receive this meal at the end of this service, what is happening according to scripture and according to the, according to the words from Jesus? The first thing that we learn about communion, what's happening at the Lord's table, is it is a place where we remember Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a guy named Paul and he's communicating with the people, here's what, here's what communion is all about. And he quoted Jesus, this will sound familiar because it's just as what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 14. As Jesus gave them the bread and he gave them the wine, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you hear that, you might just think, oh, okay, so we're just gonna remember Jesus in a memorialized sort of way where we're just reflecting back on what happened once upon a time. But think about what it really means when someone says, remember me. 
What are they really saying? I think about a time when I was in college, I was on the track team, and I was on the decathlon team specifically, which means that I had an event that was split up into two different days, and there's a lot of different events that made up one event. So before our track team would get to a meet, they would send the decathlon team, and we'd get there, and we'd have a full day of events before the rest of the team would get there. So we'd go in like a van on our own. One time, at the end of the first day, my entire team is leaving on the van, and I realize they've left me. Now, they haven't gotten out of the parking lot yet, so I'm sprinting as fast as I can, and I'm banging on the van. I'm saying, hey, and I don't know exactly what I said, but if you could imagine, I'm saying something along the lines of, remember me, remember me, don't forget me, remember me. And what am I saying? I'm not saying, think back of what I did today. I'm not saying, reflect over my events. Don't you remember what I did? I'm saying, let me in. I belong in there. When Jesus is saying, remember me in this meal, he is saying, let me in. I belong at that table. I am actually present. When we take this meal, we're not thinking about a Jesus who just lived long ago. We are encountering and eating with Jesus who says, I'm here. Acknowledge me. Know me. See me. Let me in. This is kind of hard for us these days because we get so distracted at our meal tables. I mean, sometimes if you really think, who did I have lunch with three days ago? Like maybe you ate in the cafeteria. Maybe you ate in a group of people. Maybe you ate at a restaurant. And you're trying to think, who's actually at that table? Sometimes we have a hard time remembering that because we're so distracted. So somebody might be with us, but we're not really paying attention. Psychologists, they call it this. This is from Dr. Linda Stone. It is continuous partial attention. We're living in a constant state of continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention looks like this. You're having this really deep conversation with somebody over food and it's going really, really well. And all of a sudden you hear that, like, oh no. You know, they're telling you like, you know, and I just wish that everybody in the world would understand me the way that you understand me. Oh no. And you look at your phone and you're trying to make sure that it's at a moment when they're looking away, but then they look back right when you're looking, you're like, you're not really listening to me, are you? And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm continuously partially paying attention to you. That's exactly how we say it, right? We're distracted. It's so hard for us. My wife literally had to come up with a rule in our house last week. She said, no more phones at the table. I'm like, okay. She's in charge, so we're practicing that now because we're practicing our continuous partial attention. Jesus doesn't want part of our attention. When we come to the Lord's table, Jesus wants our full attention. And it's not just to fill him up. That's not the purpose of it. The Bible tells us that Jesus is already eternally full. He's God. Jesus says, pay full attention to me because I will bring fullness to your life. It is for our benefit that we pay full attention to Jesus when we come to the Lord's table, that we recognize he truly is here. We're not just thinking back about something that happened long ago. We are thinking of an active God and seeing and acknowledging and recognizing and eating with the God who is here tonight. At the Lord's table, we remember Jesus. And also at the Lord's table, we are united in Jesus. A few weeks ago when we taught on prayer, I showed you this at Vacation Bible School every single summer. We say, this is my God hand. Can you just say that with me? This is my God hand. Then you say, this is my me hand. And in prayer, we come together. Now, if you've also heard this other old church practice or church illustration, it's here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and here's all the people, right? It's your phalanges, they're the people. Like as we are united in Jesus, we're united with each other. 
Like as we get closer to Jesus, we also get closer to people. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as he's describing what he's seeing as people gather around the Lord's table, he's frustrated about it. He says this, I cannot praise you. It sounds as if more harm is done than good when you meet together, specifically at the Lord's table. He says, first, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as the church. Then he went on to say this, so my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's supper, wait for each other, wait for each other. If I could go back to that illustration of banging on the bus, of the, uh, banging on the van doors, I'm, what am I saying? I'm like, wait for me, wait for me, wait for me. Doesn't it just hurt when you see somebody running away from you? I mean, this is like kind of a vulnerable and still painful thing for me to think about. When I was younger, I had friends in our neighborhood who oftentimes would play a game literally just to run away from me. And it hurt so bad. It made me feel like I was this big. Wait for me, wait for me, wait for me. And then I got really cool and they got really lame. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Wait for each other. Wait for each other. Jesus is waiting for every single person to be present at his table. Every single person is invited. He's not in a hurry to wrap up and start washing the dishes. He's waiting for us. Just take a look at who is in the room with him. When Jesus is doing roll call as they're all walking in, do you notice who's in there? As he's sitting with his disciples, he says this, I tell you the truth. This is like the closest Jesus ever comes to swearing. I tell you the truth. I'm not kidding about this. One of you eating with me here will betray me. Judas was there. And Judas had already handed Jesus over to the authorities by accepting money and telling them where Jesus would be that night. As Jesus is taking roll call and they're walking in, he's like, oh, James, oh, Bartholomew, hey, he's dapping him up or something like that. I don't know, maybe. I like to think of my Jesus as cool Jesus. No, I like to think of my Jesus as loving Jesus because here's what he does. Judas walks in and he doesn't say, seat's taken. <laughs> I don't know what it is about you, nine o'clock. You just, <laughs> it's from Forrest Gump. Anyway. It says, no, the person who's going to get me killed is welcome at this table. What do you think about Grace. When you receive it, it's really nice, isn't it? Like grace seems totally unfair until I need it. But here's the truth about grace. Grace is better than I think, but it's also bigger than I want. I said this on Sunday, if you worship with us at Hope Ames, you, you heard that. And I think it's important to say again, grace is better than I think, and it's bigger than I want. It's for you, it's also for them. The scandal of grace is that you could think of who you believe is the worst person to ever live and grace was made for them. Because this is true about the table of Christ. At the table of Christ, Jesus wants your company. He wants you there. You belong. Every person belongs at the table of Christ. At the Lord's table, we remember Jesus, we're united in Jesus and we're saved by Jesus. At the Lord's table, you're safe. You belong there. You belong. When was the last time you felt so safe? I mean, where you just felt untouchable. Maybe it wasn't because of physical safety, but maybe it was just because of life. 
maybe for the first time in a long time, you felt like you could just breathe. For the first time in a while, you were going to sleep at night without thinking about what was happening first thing in the morning. Maybe for the first time, you could sit at a table and eat with your friends and actually pay attention to what they were saying. When was the last time that you felt safe? When I think about the times in my life when I felt the most safe, it actually has very little to do with my own strength. Part of the reason why I feel so safe is because I'm not the one providing the safety. If it were up to me, I would just end up in more danger, but I feel safe and secure because the safety is actually out of my hands, but it's unconditional and it's there. I was in Colorado. I feel like I tell you guys about my time in Colorado all the time. But when I was a senior in college, I was living out in Colorado, it was great. Um, and I was hiking with some friends. And our goal was to hike to the top of the tallest mountain in Colorado, Mount Elbert. And we kind of sort of intentionally, accidentally got off the trail. And we ended up climbing up the backside of the mountain. And I am not, can you tell, I'm not a mountain climber. It's not my thing, you know? I don't have that great shoulder strength. Um, but I'm really good at impersonating spaghetti. I was spaghetti for Halloween. <laughs> and as I'm climbing, at one moment, one of the rocks actually slips, right? And I don't know if I would have fallen, but in the moment I thought, I'm about to die, I'm gonna fall. Everyone's gonna see it, it's gonna be terrible. And as I'm thinking I'm about to fall, I had just enough time to notice a branch next to me and I grab it. And before I grabbed it, I did not know that it was strong enough to hold me, but it was. Now, my question is, if I had been absolutely 100% certain that that branch was gonna save me, was I more safe by grabbing onto it than even if I doubted that it was gonna save me? The strength of my faith did not actually influence the strength of the branch. My safety did not depend on the strength of my faith. How much faith did it take? Just enough to reach out. Just enough to, for there to actually just be faith. One of the most famous things Jesus ever said. He said, the faith of a mustard seed could move mountains. And it gets totally taken out of context. Well, my goodness, what if you had faith the size of mountains? You changed the universe. That's not the point. The point is your faith could be tiny and weak and broken. Just as long as it's there. The safety that Jesus brings us is not dependent on the strength of our, on the strength of our faith. It's not your actual faith and the strength of it that saves you. It's the one in whom you put your faith in. See, when children would ask their parents a long time ago, why do we do what we do? Why do we worship? What are we doing? They would ask them, what, what's the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God commands us to obey? And God responded to them and he said, when they ask you that, you must tell them about my exodus my exit plan for you, my rescue plan. God says, you must tell them we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. It wasn't your strength. 
It's not what you did. It was the strength of God who brought you out with his strong hand. It continues to say that when you tell them that, make sure you also tell them about the lamb. Tell them about the lamb. Because as God brought you out and he sent that angel of death, there was the lamb that protected you. And as the lamb's blood was over your doorpost and over your home, it protected you from this judgment. Now, if the children were gonna ask them, hey, why do we worship? Why do we obey God? What's the whole point of that? Don't you think that naturally they would have asked next, what was it with the lamb? And if I'm being a total honest parent in that moment, I'd have to be like, I, 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 don't, I don't know. It's kind of weird, isn't it, Junior, right? It's gonna be the name of Abby and I's first child. <laughs> Boy or girl. What's with the lamb? Several years after the people had been exited, rescued from Egypt, there was a prophet named Isaiah who said, it's not the lamb and the blood of a person, the lamb is, of, a, of an animal, the lamb is a person. That lamb will be oppressed and afflicted, yet not open his mouth. Led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears. He's saying this in like past tense because it's God's word, so it's so good that it is actually true. But he's speaking about a time that will come. It's God's word, so it's done. It's complete. But chronologically, it's a time that will come. And this lamb will not open his mouth. Now, many, many, many years after that, John the Baptist stood in front of God's people and said, looking at Jesus, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world the one who protects you, the one who saves you. John chapter three, verse 16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. John chapter three, verse 17 is also pretty amazing, but sometimes we would just walk past it and miss it. It's Jesus saying, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. I've not come to judge the world. I've come to protect the world. See, as they were gathering around the table with Jesus that night at the Last Supper, Jesus would have been explaining the meal and they would have started to wonder. And I wonder if they started to get anxious. Where's the lamb? Where's the meat? Where's the sacrifice? And Jesus said, it's my body. It's my blood. And it confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. He is the lamb, not just saving us from physical oppression, and that's really important, but he is the lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world and takes us from ultimate oppression and brings us into ultimate salvation. When you come forward and you remember that Jesus is here, when you come forward and you are united in Christ with the family of God who is with you, when you come forward, you remember those things and you are safe with Jesus, not by your own account, not by your own strength, but by the blood of the lamb, but by the blood of Jesus. He's banking his entire life on it. He closed that passage by saying, I tell you the truth the closest he ever came to swearing. I promise you, I won't drink wine again until the day I drink it in the new kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying, I will die for this. 
I will die for this table. I will die for you to know that I'm here. I will die for you to be united and I will die to save you. Jesus wants your company at this table. As we walked in tonight, there's a good chance maybe you didn't even notice it sitting here. Now when you come forward to receive the meal at the Lord's Lord's table, expect amazing. When you come forward tonight, Jesus has shown up to save you, not condemn you. He's not looking at your resume. He's not taking a look at how much you're involved in. He's not looking at what you've done. He's not looking at how much of your homework is finished. He's not looking at what you've left undone. He's not looking at the ways you've honored your family. He's not looking at the ways that you've dishonored your family. He says, you are my family. He calls you into safe place with him. So when you come forward, remember whose table you're coming to and remember that he's actually here. Remember that when you receive this bread and drink this wine, you are receiving Jesus himself. He instituted this sacrament. He gives himself in it. And when Jesus gives himself to us, once we are joined with Jesus, he will never let us go. So tonight I invite you to come forward. Remember he's here. Be united in Christ. Be safe with him.